It's just not possible to gain that much in value that quickly with declining revenue. And that's when I really had the epiphany that investing was not about stocks and bonds. Investing is about innovation. The belief is if there's a new piece of information, that it will be instantly incorporated into the price of the stock or the bond or whatever. But that's not how people change their minds. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Ed Gotham, and welcome to another episode of Opto Sessions, where we interview the top investors from around the world, uncovering their secrets to success. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Alfonso Pecatiello, founder and CEO of the Macro Compass, a disruptive investment strategy firm whose mission is to democratize professional macro analysis, tools, and portfolio strategy. The Macro Compass leverages ALF's experience running large pools of institutional money and offers financial education, unique macroeconomic insights, and actionable investment strategy. Before launching the Macro Compass, Alfonso was the head of investments for a 20 billion, yes, billion portfolio for ING Germany. In this interview, we review ALF's market outlook for 2023, learn why the labor market might hold the key and what asset classes and instruments could perform well and not so well in this environment. Enjoy. Hey, Alf. How's it going? Hey, Ed. A pleasure to be here. All good. And you? Yeah, very good. Thanks. Very good. Uh, it's good to have you on the show. Where are you calling from today? Uh, today, I'm calling from the Netherlands. Um, I live uh, basically 70% of my time in the south of Italy, where I'm from, and uh, 30% in the north of Europe. That's quite a combination. This time, I'm uh, all the way up. Whereabouts uh, from the south of Italy? Uh, close to the Amalfi Coast, uh, Naples and that area. It's beautiful. Pizza is the best in the world, if you yeah. ask me over there. <laughs> so you got a house there as well? Do you, you live down there as well? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Most of my time now, yes. I used to live in uh, the Netherlands for 100% of my time before as I was running money for um, ING Bank. Uh, it's, it's a Dutch a global bank headquartered in the Netherlands. So I used to run money uh, here from them. But now that I don't work for the bank anymore. I'm free to be whatever I want. Yeah. And how long has Macro Compass been, been going for? So the Macro Compass has been going on for now a year, exactly a year. I quit the banking industry in December 2021. That's oh, pretty new. New change, yeah. Yeah, it's, it, it's pretty new and uh, very happy to see that people appreciate the macro educational and actionable content being put out there. It's grown very rapidly. I'm very happy about it. Well, I'm not surprised at all. It's some of the best I've, I've seen. It's, uh, these insights you've got, you know, incredible for people that normally don't get access to this, this sort of education. But anyway, I, I mean, if we kick off, it's obviously 2023 now. This episode is, is going to focus a bit more on your sort of outlook and what we can sort of expect in 2023. So happy new year. And obviously it's been an eventful 2022, to say the least, um, a protracted sort of bear market. Following the excess we've seen in the years prior, liquidity has been sucked out of the system. Uh, the Fed's executed one of the fastest tightening cycles on record. Uh, one of the most notable differences to, to previous downturns or recessions, if you like, has been underperformance of, of both stocks and bonds more than people have predicted. I thought we could kick off just before we go into your outlook for 2023, just a quick discussion about the Japan because there's been a lot happening in Japan recently. I'm not sure many people know the ins and outs of what's happening and its consequences. On the markets, I mean, they continue to change things. Um, so I thought we could start there. Sure. 
So Japan recently surprised markets by widening the band where the 10-year domestic government bond is allowed to trade. That's an interesting definition because Japan has basically restricted the volatility around 10-year Japanese government bond yields for now uh, seven years since the launch of the so-called yield curve control. That was the enhancement of the quantitative easing that Japan had been running basically for 20 years. And the reason why they moved from a quantitative easing to yield curve control at back then was simply that they were running out of bonds to buy. So uh, the Bank of Japan held at some point 60% of the Japanese government bond market. And in order to continue buying the equivalent of 50 to $80 billion Japanese government bonds a month, they needed to find a seller. And, you know, this, this market was completely drying up. I remember somewhere in 2019, there were zero trades done in the Japanese government bond market during three trading days in a row. So they decided to switch to yield curve control, which instead of targeting how many bonds you buy, so quantitative easing, it literally says, we're going to buy enough to keep Japanese government bond yields at a certain yield level or in a range that we accept to be good enough or easy enough for our monetary policy to work. Now, uh, why has Japan done that for so much time? Is simply because over the last 20 years, core inflation in Japan has been minus 0.3% on average, minus. So Japan has been effectively uh, flirting with deflation, outright deflation for two decades. So their objective was always to keep monetary policy as easy as possible in order to try and boost the economy. They never succeeded, but that was uh, their intention. Lately, something has happened. Inflation in Japan, core inflation is quickly heading towards 2%. And many analysts expect in Japan that the core inflation will be at 2% in next year as well. Now, that changes the picture a bit because the Bank of Japan can now claim that they are achieving their target finally, which means they can also get out of their easy monetary policy. They are not achieving their target, let's be clear, because of easy monetary policy. It didn't work for 20 years. It hasn't worked as well to magically boost inflation right now. Inflation in Japan is going up because energy costs have been rapidly rising, and Japan is an importer of energy from the outside. The Japanese yen has tanked uh, almost 20% against the dollar, so import prices from abroad also are going up, etc., etc. Nevertheless, inflation is rising, which also helps the Bank of Japan to say, let's widen the band to allow 10-year Japanese government bond yields to trade a bit higher in yields. And that's what they did. They widened the band, so Japanese government bonds can now trade at 0.5%. Not much, but at least the direction of travel seems to be very clear. The Bank of Japan now thinks they can uh, tighten up policy a bit. Kuroda, which is the governor of the Bank of Japan, is finishing his mandate in April, which also gives a bit of leeway to his successor to pick up a new monetary policy strategy, a bit more aggressive when it comes to fighting inflation. So Japan is set towards that path. And it's important because Japan is one of the biggest capital exporters in the world. And we can talk about that, but when domestic yields rise in Japan, when the yen appreciates, the incentive scheme for Japanese investors to export capital abroad, to buy U.S. treasuries, to buy European assets, goes down as the attractiveness of keeping money at home actually increases. So they, they typically look elsewhere to get better return on their, on their capital, okay? But this, this new environment's changing that, and they're not looking to buy as many US treasuries, is that typically what they went for? 
So Ed, the uh, Japanese investors last year have uh, net sold U.S. treasuries. They have not purchased any U.S. treasuries, even as the Bank of Japan hadn't uh, still changed their stance to a more hawkish stance. And the reason why they had refused to do so is that when Japanese investors look for foreign opportunities to uh, deploy capital, they look at two things. They look at the additional return that they can make on top of the domestic return. And for years, that has been uh, available everywhere. I mean, uh, European yields were higher than in Japan. U.S. yields were higher than in Japan. U.S. and European equities were more attractive than Japanese equities. Therefore, this condition was always there. And it was there as well in 2022. I mean, U.S. treasuries were yielding 4% and Japanese bonds were yielding nothing. The problem is that you also run foreign exchange risks by doing that. Because as a Japanese investor, you need to purchase U.S. dollars or to borrow them first to then buy U.S. treasuries, but you will be incurring into FX risks between your Japanese yen, your domestic currency, and the foreign currency you're investing in, basically, through assets. So to hedge that, uh, Japanese investors normally use some hedging FX products, and those products were becoming very, very expensive because of the Federal Reserve hiking cycle. So borrowing dollars or hedging against the dollar was becoming very expensive. So they simply refused to participate in there. What's going to happen next year, I think, is that as you increase the attractiveness to keep money at home, so Japanese yields go a bit higher than they were over the last five to 10 years, the incentive scheme for Japanese investors to take risks abroad, to buy especially equities, risk assets, denominated in foreign currency while the global economy slows down, and at the same time, you have domestic yields that are higher, denominated in your own currency without FX risks, Actually, uh, that seems to be a, a more palatable option than taking these risks. Yeah. It's important, again, because the flow of capital from Japan to the uh, outside world, be it Europe or the US, is really large. So okay. even a small change in that flow of capital and in, in that incentive scheme is important for global investors. So you, you basically lost potentially a, a big buyer of equities in the US and European markets, which puts further pressure on risk assets, yeah. That is correct. Then the uh, other, for, for instance, the other thing we can think of on the similar path is uh, the Swiss National Bank. The Swiss National Bank acted for 10 years like a global hedge fund. They accumulated one trillion worth of uh, foreign exchange reserves. They were trying to make the Swiss franc less strong. It's another country where uh, they're almost basically flirting with deflation the whole time. So they want the weaker currency to try and boost domestic inflation which means they sell the Swiss franc and they buy euros, they buy dollars, right? They try to push the foreign exchange rate lower and therefore they purchase euros or dollars. With these euros or dollars, they then buy euro and dollar denominated assets. They ended up buying one trillion worth of European US bonds and also equities. The Swiss National Bank held at some point over 200 billion worth of US equities, mostly tech stocks. Now, uh, inflation is also picking up in Switzerland. Which means, like in Japan, Switzerland now has a different incentive scheme, not to depreciate your currency. If you're fighting inflation, you want your currency to be strong, not weak. Which means you are not going to buy uh, US equities at the margin, you're going to sell them. Yeah. So these pressures from these big elephants, institutional central bank buyers like uh, Bank of Japan, Japanese investors, the Swiss National Bank, it is very, very important to, to have a look at that to understand what the flow of capital will be for foreign assets. It's crazy how interconnected this this world is. It makes it very very complex to, to decide what's going on, and that's why we look to people like yourself. So, 
I mean, let's talk about 2023. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on. I'm sure you've done a lot of work to, I know you have, because I've been following your blog and there's a lot of things you've been looking into using your models to estimate what's going to happen. So let's, let's, uh, let's hear your opinion of, of 2023. So my take on 2023 is that the economy and markets in 2023 Ed, are going to be the reflection of how tight monetary policy and fiscal policy was in 2022. I want to stress this out because this is the exact reversal of how the economy and markets in 2021 were a reflection of the very loose monetary and fiscal policy in 2020. Now, let's start from there. In 2020, the five largest governments in the world injected fiscal stimulus at the fastest pace and for the biggest amount ever together at the same time. The US alone printed 25% of GDP in fiscal stimulus. That's $5 trillion of money that literally reaches the private sector. It's money you and I can spend at in the real economy. So Europe did fiscal stimulus, Japan did fiscal stimulus, the UK, everybody did the same at the same time. So a lot of new spendable money was created for fiscal stimulus. So the fiscal stance was very expansionary. And at the same time, the monetary policy stance was super expansionary as well. Interest rates super low, real yields negative everywhere, quantitative easing everywhere. So in 2020, you got that. And the economy and markets in 2021, Ed, were a reflection of what happened in 2020. The real economy grew like hell. Earnings grew by 50% year on year in the standard and purse. Nominal growth in the US was 10% year on year, real plus inflation. Markets were all over the place. And we got to some point where because of the excessive amount of fiscal and monetary stimulus, there were also excessive animal spirits in markets. You had stuff trading at 100 PEs. You had very much reminiscent attitude of the 2000 uh, dot-com bubble, if you ask me, to certain extents, right? But that, again, was a reflection of the excesses in monitoring fiscal stimulus in 2020. Okay, now let's go back to 2023. If we do the same experiment, we'll have to look at 2022 in terms of fiscal stance and monetary policy stance. Ed. So let's look at the fiscal stance first. The last time that the US sent checks at home to people was April 2021. From that moment onwards, the US government has tried to stimulate as little as they can. Actually, they've had a very good tax season in 2021, which means they have taxed the private sector more. They have drained resources from the private sector. So the fiscal stance everywhere has reversed. Instead of being very loose, it's neutral at best, but on a rate of change basis compared to what it was a couple of years ago, you, you can argue it's pretty negative in relative terms. So the fiscal stance isn't expansionary anymore. What about the monetary policy stance? Well, you were talking about that in the intro, right? I mean, the Federal Reserve has went with the fastest hiking cycle in 40 years. Real interest rates are now positive everywhere. Even the Swiss National Bank, the European Central Bank, the Bank of Japan, even those central banks have turned hawkish. Quantitative tightening is ongoing in the US, will be ongoing for next year. That's the opposite of quantitative easing. It drains reserves from the system. It doesn't add, but it drains them. Europe has now joined with quantitative tightening. I mean, can you imagine, Ed, the ECB doing quantitative tightening? They will. They have announced that they will shrink their balance sheet. So bottom line, in 2022, and also going into 2023, you're going to have a 
non-expansionary fiscal stance and a very tight monetary policy. 2023 will be the reflection of this 2022 tight stance on monetary and fiscal policy, which means the economy will slow down very aggressively, both in real terms and in nominal terms, which also means inflation Mm -hmm. will slow down. But in order to slow down inflation from where it is today to where central bankers want inflation to be, historically, you need a recession to achieve that because the starting point is too elevated for inflation to slow down in a soft lending environment. You are going to have a recession if central bankers are really keen in achieving their 2% target. And I think they are because they want to try and get back some of the credibility they lost massively by not seeing this inflationary spike, by being very late to the party, hiking interest rates. Now they want to regain credibility, which means they're going to keep hiking and keep tight, even if it becomes incredibly clear to everybody that we will be walking in a recession. But again, it's not about what we want central bankers to do. When it comes to investments, it's what about they will do so that we can position and manage the portfolios accordingly. Mm-hmm. And can you tell us why you think the labor market maybe holds the key on the turning point here on how the Fed sort of um, plays out this year? So the way I look at different asset classes today is the bond market has been basically screaming for about a year at least, uh, Ed, that they don't think that this tighter monetary policy is sustainable. And how do you see that? You mostly see that in the inversion of the yield curve. So the front end of the bond market, two-year bond yields, basically, those are effectively controlled almost completely by the central bank. I mean, if the Federal Reserve tells you, look, Fed funds rate are going to be 4 or 5%, and we're going to try and glue them there for as long as we can, obviously it needs to be reflected into two-year interest rates. They basically are telling you where the Fed funds will be for the next year or two. So you need to respect that stance and you're going to glue them there at 4.5% or wherever they are today. But the back end of the, of the bond market, it's a different story. 10-year bonds, third-year bonds, add. Those yields are driven by different dynamics. They are driven by the expectations that traders have about future growth and future inflation. Now, what happens if you stubbornly raise interest rates to 5% or more? What happens if you cause a recession with that and you cause quite long-lasting damage to the economy? You are going to engineer lower inflation. I mean, cyclically speaking, obviously, if people lose their job, if companies don't make any money anymore, you are going to see over time inflation come down too because the spending power of the private sector is going down. I mean, people are getting unemployed, which means they don't, they don't have a wage anymore, let alone supporting higher prices with their spending. But what that also means is that growth is going to come down very aggressively. And so these 10-year, 30-year bond deals are reflecting pretty much bad prospects for inflation and growth down the road because they think that the central bank is going to do a lot of damage by pinning these interest rates high at the front end. And so you get an inverted yield curve where the front-end yields are controlled by the central bank and the back-end yields are instead the reflection of what investors are thinking about growth and inflation down the road. When the yield curve inverts as much as it did now, generally speaking, it tends to predict recessions well, well, simply because you are effectively constraining the private sector ability to borrow. You're saying, look, if you used to borrow at 3%, now if you want a five-year mortgage, it's going to be at 7 or 8%. And then all of a sudden, housing sales stop and housing prices drop. 
So you are forcing the private sector to slow down and it gets reflected in the yield curve. Now, at some point when it comes to the bond market, the Federal Reserve will have to throw in the towel. I mean, there will be a point in which they understand they have done enough damage, but it will be very late in the cycle at this time. They will not be proactive. They have been wrong on the inflationary spike. They haven't seen that coming. They cannot afford, from a credibility perspective, being wrong again and, let's say, loosening policy too early. They will wait for the labor market to fall, for earnings to fall, for inflation to convincingly fall in order for them to react and cut interest rates. But it's going to be very late in the cycle. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. And what metric are they sort of looking at to get an indication of the, the sort of um, quality of the labour market at the moment? And why, why is it a, a lagging indicator as well yeah. when we look at it? It's, it's a very good question, Ed. So when it comes to the labour market, I do expect that the US will not be adding any new net jobs by somewhere mid-2023. That's zero no, new uh, non-farm payrolls added on a monthly basis. So that means unemployment rate goes up because to keep unemployment rate stable, the US needs to add roughly 100,000 jobs a month, more or less, because the labor force grows as well over time. So you need to add roughly 100,000 jobs, employed people, to keep unemployment rate stable. Why do I think that that is there? There are some leading indicators that over time work very well. And at the Macro Compass, one of the things we do is to have a quantitative approach, a data-driven approach to macroeconomic cycles and investing. Because everybody can make a narrative, right? But it's all about studying what are the leading indicators, where do we stand in the cycle, and how to, in a data-driven way, approach investments accordingly. So if I look at these leading indicators for the labor market, what I see today is that one of the, the main drivers over time has been the housing market activity. And it seems a bit weird to people, but it's not because the housing market employment related uh, numbers in the US are roughly 17 to 18% of total. So if you take the ancillary activities around the housing market, construction workers, um, mortgage brokers, uh, furniture shops, and so on and so forth, right? They tend to account for a large portion of, uh, of the labor force. And also, they are a very cyclical and interest rate-driven sector. I mean, if mortgage rates go down, all of a sudden, everybody can afford a more expensive house. They go up and they go for a new mortgage. They flip their house. They refinance. They hire brokers. They hire construction workers. It's a positive loop, right? The opposite happens when mortgage rates are rapidly going up and the economy is slowing down at the same time, which is what is happening today. When the housing market slows as fast as it has slowed today, and to give you a reference, in Canada, for instance, housing sales in Toronto are now at the weakest um, year-on-year rate over the last 40 years. The market is basically frozen, and the same I can say for the US, and very soon the same I will be able to say in Europe. In the UK, similar story, house prices are falling on a monthly basis on a consecutive month-to-month basis. When that happens, housing activity and housing employment stops. There is no need to have new brokers, new construction workers hired if there are no, no new housing sales, right? If the market is frozen. When that happens, you start to see the first negative uh, construction and housing um, employment contribution. And also that tends to ripple through other sectors. So it starts from the most cyclical ones and then it goes through other sectors. 
If you look at that leading indicator, it's calling for US unemployment rate at 7% in 2024. That's double where we are today at. That's a proper, proper recession. The other indicator you can look for the, the employment is financial conditions. And again, try to follow me here. It's pretty simple. It's how the economic cycle works. In 2022, financial conditions have become very, very tight for corporates. Interest rates went up, credit spreads widened, equity multiples went down, the dollar went up. Everything became much more complicated if you were a corporate that had the leverage and needed to borrow and refinance this leverage. So what do you do, Ed? You normally try to postpone leveraging up your business model, which means you have to cut some costs. That's the alternative you have. So at the beginning, you cut discretionary spending, advertising, all that stuff, right? And then you wait, just wait for a bit. But then you see that as you are cutting spending, the economy is also slowing down. So the next step you have is because you can't afford refinancing at these very high rates and these very prohibitive conditions, you'll have to cut more core costs. So investments and labor. And so it takes some time for financial conditions to feed into the labor market. The tighter they are, the worse it is for the labor market, but it always does. Yeah. And looking at that, it also, given 2022 financial conditions became super, super tight as the Federal Reserve was, uh, was increasing interest rates, non-farm payrolls, again, should converge towards zero by June. And again, at zero non-farm payrolls means the US is already in a recession. Mm-hmm. I expect the recession to hit roughly between April and May 2023. And can we just quickly talk about interest rates? Well, I read something very interesting on your blog about, you know, how do we know if interest rates are high or low that when people talk about it and it's all about relativity and equilibrium? And because, you know, interest rates have been a lot higher previously, why is it so impactful now, you know, given where it is? Extremely valid question again, Ed. So people ask me off. But this mortgage rate at 7%, what are you talking about? In the 80s, mortgage rates were 15, 18%. So those are not high today. Yeah. Okay. I think there is a lot of clarity there that we need to try and, um, and shed on, on people. So interest rates are high or low relative to something. So there is a thing, a concept in finance, which is called R star. It's the equilibrium real interest rate that an economy basically can uh, sustain without overeating or cooling down too much. It's an equilibrium rate at which if that is prevailing, the economy doesn't overheat, doesn't go into a recession, it delivers its potential GDP growth, its potential employment. It works flawlessly, let's say. What drives this equilibrium? How do we estimate this equilibrium R-star? The way we do it is looking at um, several factors, but the most important ones are demographics, debt, and productivity of an economy. Because the long-term potential of of an economy, the long-term equilibrium growth, is determined by basically three things. The first is how many people are in the labor force, how many people are actively contributing to growth, which is basically a function of demographics. Like, do we have a lot of kids coming into the labor force? Is the labor force growing over time? Or is it shrinking because we're all becoming gray-haired and 65-plus and we don't have birth rates that support the replacement of these retirees in the labor force? That's the first question. The second is productivity. So even if you have less people in the labor force, Ed, if you're able to add productivity growth year over year at very rapid levels, you might be able to hold up your growth pretty well. right? So that's the other component. And the third is debt. 
Because if you weigh the private sector and the public sector with a lot of unproductive debt, at some point, you're going to have a slower growth simply because people are looking at their balance sheets and they're like, oh God, I need to you know, pay attention to my debt levels here more than my growth prospects. And you look at the economies in the 80s, Ed, and they had a super good demographic trends. So they had young people from the 50s. There was a demographic boom. They were entering the labor force en masse. And the economy was not as old, gray-haired, populated as it is today. Productivity was on the rise because we had the first industrial um, technological revolutions. And as we headed into the 90s, we had the first real from the IT perspective and technology perspective. And how productivity growth works is that the first um, technological revolution, the first industrial revolutions are the most effective ones to push up productivity growth very aggressively. Because imagine you don't have that technology. All of a sudden you have that technology that permeates different sectors. So the first five to 10 years are super rapid increases in productivity growth. Over time, as that technology has already permeated the economy, productivity growth increases year by year. We become a bit better at using that technology, but the impact is not as fast as it was at the beginning. In the 80s and in the 90s, you had that fast impact of productivity growth all of a sudden. And then you had that. Well, private and public debt levels in the 80s and in the 90s were much, much lower than today. In the 90s, U.S. total debt to GDP, private and public sector debt as percentage of GDP, was around 100%. Today, it's 300% of GDP. So what I'm saying is that the equilibrium real rates that the U.S. economy or the European economy could sustain in the 90s or in the 80s were much higher than today. The economy was structurally much more healthy than today. Then you go to today and you look at demographics, they're horrible. The labor force in Germany, in Europe, in the UK, in Japan, it's shrinking on a yearly basis. So we don't have more people coming into the labor force. We have less people contributing to the economic growth year by year. That's bad. Productivity, yes, we have a super good technology now, but we have had it for the last 10 to 20 years. So the marginal increase in productivity has already been generated. So we become a bit more productive year by year, but not by much, roughly 1% a year. And then we are loaded up with that unproductive debt in the private and the public sector, which means today the equilibrium rates are super low. In the US, 0% is the equilibrium real interest rates at which the US economy can function. In Europe, is slightly negative, which means all of a sudden, if you increase mortgage rates, borrowing rates super rapidly, and you bring them back to 5%, 6%, 7%, in real terms, if you assume inflation is going to stabilize, we're talking about 3 4% real interest rates against equilibrium levels that are zero. What you're doing is you are constraining the private sector very, very aggressively. Also, another example, a mortgage rate today at 7% on a house which costs a million, is much more prohibitive than a 15% mortgage rate on a house that used to cost 200000 back in the 90s. Yeah. So you need to refer that to some level of equilibrium, to some benchmark, be it house prices, be it the equilibrium real interest rates in the economy. If you do this adjustment for some benchmarks, today's conditions are very, very, very prohibitive for the private sector. Got you. No, very interesting. Important for people to know. Um, Following on from your macro prediction and markets, what asset classes do you think are going to perform well, not so well, um, and how you know how should investors approach? That's a yeah, hard so, question, but you know at a top level. <laughs> no, 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 sure, sure. So the macro compass has a an asset allocation model, 
And that asset allocation model is, again, data-driven, quantitatively derived by how we look at macroeconomic leading indicators. Effectively, we are trying to determine, Ed, in which cycle are we in. And normally, we look at two axes on the macro compass. There is an axis that tells us where is growth, where is the rate of change of growth going to be? Are we going to have accelerating growth? Are we going to have decelerating growth? The other axis tells us how is the monetary policy stance going to be? Is it going to be looser? Is it going to be tighter? How are real yields doing? And all of that, right? So if you look today and this um, asset allocation model, it will tell you that you are in quadrant four. And quadrant four is basically uh, the moment where nominal growth decelerates aggressively. I talked about a recession in the US uh, starting around April, May. And central banks are keeping policy very, very tight. And we discussed about quantitative tightening, et cetera. Well, the combination of these two, historically, when you backtest for asset returns in the past, it's honestly very complicated for a long-only investor to do well in this environment. And we have had similar experiences in 2022, in 2018, in 2008, where you had situations similar to that. 2023 is a year that starts with the same constellation, I would say. So it's very difficult for now to say, hey, let's go and buy some bonds, buy some equities, buy some gold, sit on it, and we're going to make returns. By the way, one small um, note from my end, investors have become pretty uh, acquainted with the idea that between 2010 and 2020, you bought some bonds, some gold and some equities and went to sleep. Uh, then you made 10% plus a year with extremely limited volatility mm-hmm. in your portfolio and no drawdowns, basically. And when there was a little of a drawdown, the central bank would come in and would say, da, 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 take it easy. I'm going to do quantitative easing. I'm going to lower interest rates, relax. So people are very spoiled, if you ask me to a certain extent, because they assume this regime was permanent, but it's not. The regime ahead for macro is one where you need to be an active macro risk manager if you want to try and deliver returns. So I look at the first half of the year is you need to, when you look at the equity market, it's going to be very hard for um, equity indices to deliver positive performance. So you need to look at equity sectors. You want to shy away from cyclical sectors, the companies that need strong economic activity to deliver. Those are uh, you know, the, the banks, uh, the, the small cap uh, companies in the Russell 2000, for example, you need to shy away a bit from those. If you want to allocate, you need to look at the defensive sectors of the equity market. So that will be maybe utilities, pharma, staples, so more stable kind of equity uh, sectors. In some cases, they might even not deliver positive returns, but at least they will shield your performance more than if you're invested in mm-hmm. Tesla by now or uh, cyclical uh, sectors, right? Then you look at the bond market, and that's interesting. You are paid to wait, and that's something that didn't happen for the last 10 years. Today, you can buy T-bills as a U.S. investor, or you can buy short-dated European government bonds. In the U.S., you will make roughly 4%, 4.5% a year by simply waiting and putting your money in a money market fund, in a T-bill that's not too bad, Ed, isn't it? You're paid to wait and to navigate a recession while waiting for better opportunities. Mm-hmm. And we have heard that cash is trash for a very long amount of time for good reasons. I mean, if you allocated anywhere, you made money. I think cash in 2023 to start the year is definitely not trash. And it helps you get some returns. Yeah. Four to five percent is not too bad. While at the same time, you wait for a better constellation of events. And I will finish by saying, what's that better constellation of events exactly? 
because if you look at um, economic growth, that's not going to get better uh, very quickly. If you look at that, that's not going to work. I mean, the recession means that people are going to get unemployed and that's uh, unfortunately not good for economic growth. But at the same time, what might happen is that the Federal Reserve turns. They understand they've done enough damage. And if they do understand they've done enough damage, they will cut interest rates. And when they cut interest rates, gold and bonds normally perform very well. So you can allocate into an asset that will deliver positive returns. In the meantime, though, you are paid to be defensive, you're paid to be conservative, and that's how I would allocate my assets heading into 2023. Yeah, okay. And looking further out, uh, you, you discussed how buy and hold is, is not a good strategy for the next five to 10 years. This is because of the increased volatility and other factors. Can you describe that? So basically, I think the macro regime has completely changed uh, compared to the last 10 years. Mm, over the last 10 years, you've had a disinflation environment where in some cases growth was okay, in some cases growth was slower, but the determinant factor was that inflation was very, very low and very, very stable, which meant Ed, that central banks always had this option, the so-called Fed put, where they could simply come in and say, you know, I can support the, the, um, the equity markets and the bond markets because I don't have a problem when it comes to inflation. Now we head into the next five years and things have radically changed, I think. For one, I would say that um, politicians have understood the power of fiscal stimulus. We have seen it in 2020. If they really throw money at people, I'm not talking quantitative easing, I'm talking fiscal injections, yeah. the economy picks up. And it's pretty obvious if you ask me because you're giving people money to spend and at some time they will spend it and it will show up in economic growth. Now, when they understand this, they've also seen the flip side of it, which is inflation. If you do too much of that, obviously, you are giving too much spendable money, chasing the same amount of goods and services. Ah, what happens is that goods and services prices are going to go up. Now, why am I saying this? For 10 years, between 2010 and 2020, fiscal stimulus was a taboo. It was austerity. It was the outcome of the great financial crisis that we needed to uh, you know, be much more strict about our fiscal spending. I think that's, that might change a little bit. I don't expect um, fiscal stimulus to run very large every year, but I expect a pendulum. And so I expect that when growth slows down, when inflation slows down, politicians now understand that by injecting money into the economy, they can quickly revive the economy. And so if this pendulum, and actually the other problem is, after the injection, there is always a fiscal cliff, exactly what we're seeing right now. So we're going to be seeing these fast pendulums, basically, being much more frequent, much more present than they were in the last 10 years. Yeah. That's the first source of volatility. The second one is definitely geopolitics. I mean, we are seeing rapid changes when it comes to the idea that you can have on-time global supply chains working flawlessly, and you can outsource manufacturing, you can outsource labor, and you're going to have every piece of your components reach your shore exactly when you want it to reach your shore. And it's going to be perfect and it's going to lead to disinflationary productivity and growth. Well, I think this idea is being highly challenged. We have seen supply chains disruption all over the place. It's going to take a while, but developed market governments are looking for ways to become more energy independent. They're looking for ways to become more production, supply chain independent as well, which requires some tectonic shifts in the geopolitics uh, out there, which also is a source of volatility. I mean, you're seeing Russia, Ukraine, you're seeing China, Taiwan, but you're seeing also US, China, 
where the US is trying to cut away China effectively from the semiconductor chip business in the world and making it impossible for China to replicate that very important technology. So all this geopolitical shifts happening will increase macro volatility. Mm-hmm. Effectively, I'm saying the big term trends have probably not changed. Demographics is terrible. Productivity is not going to uh, explode. Debt levels are going to keep increasing. That hasn't changed, Ed. But the policymakers' reactions, the pendulum between growth and inflation, between recessions and periods of high growth and high inflation, I think that pendulum is going to swing much faster than the last 10 years. And also the geopolitical theater is changing. So buy and hold is not going to work well in this environment. Active macro risk management, it's what's needed, I think, to navigate these periods better. Thanks, Alf. That's uh, very good good, uh, insights from yourself and uh, an exceptionally interesting conversation. So thank you for your time. Um, I thought we could finish just by wrapping up and you could explain a bit more about the Macro Compass and your new platform, uh, how it can benefit people. Thanks, Ed. The Macro Compass is a platform that tries to step up the game for macro investors. So it services retail investors, sophisticated retail investors, and also institutional investors at the same time with different products in different year. What we try to do is analyze the macro cycle from a data-driven perspective, give these insights to people, and also make them very applicable when it comes to both asset allocation. We publish actionable ETF portfolios. So you can literally see what the asset allocation is at any point in time, how we are positioning to handle this macro volatility, and also more tactical trade ideas, a more tactical portfolio that benefits from shorter time moves as well, always backed by a data-driven approach. On top of that, we also give investors the tools to learn and become better macro investors themselves. For instance, we produce interactive macro tools. They can use that under our guidance to connect the dots in the global macro puzzle. We want to democratize the access to data, information, and tools that the professionals have while the sophisticated retail investor struggles to get access to that kind of information, analysis, and tools. I have been an institutional investor myself. I've managed $20 billion for ING. And the amount of information you get being within the ivory tower is incredible. So that gap between the information I used to get back in there and the one that the normal investor gets always bugged me. And we are trying to close that gap, both with giving insights, giving actionable ETF portfolios and ideas, but also giving interactive tools. All of that is available at uh, the Macro Compass. Thanks, Alf. That's, that's really good. Um, we'll leave um, links to your website, etc., in, in the show notes. So people interested in that, please uh, just look at it there. Thanks again for such an interesting conversation. I hope we get the chance to do it again. Thank you, Ed. It's been a pleasure. Every time you want me back up here, just uh, ping me up and I'll be here. Happy to, uh, to contribute. Thanks very much. Have a good day, Alf. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports, or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time. Co-fruition.